It's Wednesday, July 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump is planning to send about 150 Homeland Security Investigations agents to Chicago to help local law enforcement deal with the spike in crime. These agents will likely assist in intelligence gathering, targeting drug trafficking groups and gangs. Nick Miroff, DHS reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for why federal agents may be headed to Chicago and other cities. Next, many restaurants have hit their breaking point and are permanently calling it quits. Riding the roller coaster of coronavirus restrictions and people wary of eating out has proved too much for some to stay in business. Over 15,000 restaurants have permanently closed and more could be on the way. Heather Haddon, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the pandemic continues to wreak havoc on the restaurant industry. Finally, vitamin C is having a moment during the pandemic and sales are surging. But you have to watch out for some offering it up as a coronavirus treatment. The FTC and FBI are investigating health clinics and wellness centers for overhyping high-dose IV infusions of vitamin C as a way to prevent or treat COVID-19. Brent Scrotenbohr, investigative reporter at USA Today, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We don't need uh, federal agents without any insignia taking people off the street um, and holding them, I think, unlawfully. Joining us now is Nick Miroff, DHS reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Good to be with you. President Trump is planning to deploy federal agents to Chicago, possibly other cities, uh, as he continues to assert uh, federal power and use the Department of Homeland Security in a bunch of different ways. Nick, tell us a little bit about what's going on in Chicago that he sees the need to send federal agents there. Well, as many of your listeners will be aware, there's been a significant increase in violent crime in several U.S. cities over the past few months. Chicago, New York, and elsewhere have seen a lot of gun violence in particular. Now, one of the tricky things is that that dynamic is being conflated with the situation we're seeing unfold in Portland, which is quite different, where protesters are squaring off against federal agents outside a courthouse every night. That is very much a kind of political dynamic that we saw several months ago after the killing of George Floyd. And what the president is talking about going forward would be a sort of a federal response to this increase in violent crime. And so far, we know that that's planned for Chicago, but that firm operations aren't scheduled yet for any other U.S. city so far. And to further clarify that distinction, what's going on in Portland, the agents that were dispatched there are there to protect federal property, basically. And in Chicago, this is more of a response to crime that's going on there, which has gone up. There's a lot of different things that's going on. There's a lot of shootings. There's a lot of homicides that are going on. And that's what they're talking about with regards to Chicago. One of the things that we're seeing is that the president and his rhetoric, and particularly his campaign rhetoric, is kind of trying to conflate the two things and saying that the kind of rowdy street protests that we're seeing in Portland, particularly attacking this federal courthouse that's being defended by DHS agents every night, you know, that that is the kind of anarchy that he um, says is playing out on U.S. streets everywhere and is to blame for this increase in shootings. And he is laying that squarely at the feet of Democratic mayors. He said yesterday in the Oval Office that the radical left mayors are responsible for this and that he's going to basically send in the feds, whether they like it or not, 
And, you know, he's warning that if Joe Biden, his opponent were to win, that we would see this kind of chaos breaking out across the country. So it's very consistent with his campaign effort to present himself as a kind of law and order figure who can pacify these cities and bring everything under control. But again, DHS officials, when you talk to them and dig down, make very clear that they don't see the Portland situation as being comparable to what's happening in these U.S. cities and are planning a very different deployment for both cases. So in Chicago, they're looking to send about 150 Homeland Security investigative agents there. It doesn't sound like they're going to be out on the streets doing enforcement, making arrests, things like that. So what would they be doing there in Chicago to aid local police? Well, so Homeland Security Investigations is a division of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, and immediately that makes people think of immigration agents. And that particular division of ICE is the one that targets transnational crime, drug trafficking, counterfeit goods, things like that. And so in this case, they say they will not be involved in an immigration enforcement role, but will be working on surveillance and helping local and state authorities that are targeting gangs, drug traffickers, and the actors, they say, who are really driving this increase in homicides. Mayor Lori Lightfoot has said, you know, she doesn't want federal agents there. What else have they been saying? Well, that's, you know, a dynamic that we see over and over again, where it's sort of like if this had occurred quietly and state and local officials would be getting support from the federal government, as they always do, because, again, a lot of these Federal agents are already working in that area, working in the Metro Chicago area, and cooperate with state and local police as a routine part of their job. It's when you see the president making it into a kind of campaign-related effort, into a projection of his power, into a standoff with Democrats, that you politicize it and you get that response from Mayor Lightfoot and others who, I think, you know, out of hand, feel they have to kind of, you know, reject it, this deployment with the idea that they can't be seen as kind of accepting the president imposing federal forces on their cities. What about response from police? Chicago Police Union and other police unions welcome the federal support and want the federal government to help. And that's a particular point of tension, I think, between Democratic mayors who are responding to these calls to you know, defund the police, abolish the police, and are facing a uh, you know, a very tenuous situation on the streets after George Floyd and the police departments themselves, or at least the unions that feel besieged and unfairly blamed or painted with a broad brush. I think the president is trying to get inside that rift and try to shore up their support and his image as a defender of law and order. Nick Miroff, Department of Homeland Security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. As the pandemic has ground along, I think a lot of restaurants are really just trying to assess what can they do here? Is it worth trying to pour a lot of money into changing their operations to make this work? Joining us now is Heather Haddon, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks so much wanted to talk about restaurants throughout this pandemic. It's been a very tough road for them, especially with all the ups and downs. Obviously, they had to close a lot of indoor dining when this all started. 
then states started reopening, then states started scaling things back. And I know uh, in Los Angeles, over here in California, where I live, it's been a, a very bad road. They were able to open indoor dining. I think it was about a month tops. And then everything had to close down again. They had to go back to outdoor dining. And really, this whole roller coaster has led a lot of restaurants just to call it quits. Heather, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it's really been a roller coaster for these operators in a lot of states now. California mentioned uh, New Mexico has swung back and forth. New York City and New Jersey, where there were some hopes to start indoor dining, they never did resume it. And now it's on indefinite hold. So as the pandemic has ground along, I think a lot of restaurants are really just trying to assess what can they do here? Is it worth trying to pour a lot of money into changing their operations to make this work? And for certain sit-down uh, restaurants in particular, they're just deciding it isn't. One of the restaurants that you featured in your article was Eden. Tell us about their ride because they closed down, then they opened in a modified structure and they just announced that they had to close because they just can't keep up with it all. They really did everything you could uh, as a sit-down restaurant to try to make it work. So this is a, a new American-style restaurant in a trendy part of Chicago, had a catering business, had a greenhouse where they grew a lot of their own produce, made a lot of their own pastries and desserts, um, breads to go into the catering business and into their restaurant, had a large 90-seat restaurant. And got a lot of foot traffic, both from, you know, foodies and also people going to see concerts at a local arenas, you know, and now everything has just changed for them. So they had to shut down their indoor dining and all dining when the coronavirus first hit. They retooled things. They had an on-site market where they were selling a lot of their products. And then when they could, they last month in June in Chicago, they started outdoor dining. Uh, they put up a tarp that was traditionally used for their catering business to seat something like 60 diners at one time outside when indoor dining was allowed. Late last month, they had about 20 seats of that. In the end, it just did not seem feasible for them um, on large part because of their expenses, because of high rent costs and just a lot of uncertainty about what would what would the fall look like. You know, in Chicago, it gets cold. So outdoor dining, you know, as opposed to California, maybe that's a little bit more possible year round, um, not in Chicago. A lot of restaurants tap the federal Paytech protection program, but they're saying that a lot of that money is gone now and we don't know what future aid is going to be given by the government right now. That's right. There's a lot of discussions about another relief package and the restaurant industry has certainly asked for something more substantial and something very targeted to the industry. They would like, I think it's something like $120 billion to try to help restaurants stem this whole situation, um, stave it off. But that's going to take a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of other industries that also need help and want help. And Congress already did a whole relief package. So it's just not something that restaurants can count on. And they have bills. They have rent to pay, utilities, supply costs, labor, all this cleaning costs. So it, unless you really want to take the risk, it's, it, for some, it just makes more sense to close while things are relatively up. Eden uh, that I wrote about had a great last weekend, um, which makes them feel like they're leaving on a good note. And the projections really don't look good as this thing keeps stretching on. A lot of the trade groups have said that they just expect more restaurants to close that just can't keep up with all of it. Yeah. So the National Restaurant Association, the 
main trade group is still projecting that tens of thousands of restaurants will close by year's end. Um, that being said, you know, the some areas of the restaurant industry are doing okay. Fast food with drive-throughs is doing okay. Um, other chains, again, that have a big to-go operation are doing okay. It's the sit-down independent restaurants where it's really about an experience inside, eating a long meal. I mean, you're just not going to do that right now. So it's really tough for them. Heather Haddon, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay. Thanks so much. Probably very predictably, we're seeing businesses that are going to try to push the envelope and try to say that that mainlining vitamin C into your veins is going to prevent or cure COVID-19. Joining us now is Brent Scrotenbohr, investigative reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Brent. Thank you. Appreciate it. Vitamin C seems to be having a moment during the coronavirus pandemic. Sales of vitamin C supplements have gone up to about 209 million dollars in the first half of 2020. That's up 76% compared to the same period last year. I know just anecdotally for myself, as soon as all the hoarding was going on and people were doing all this panic buying, my wife right away bought up a bunch of vitamin C stuff too. She said it's good for you, but there's actually a lot of instances where People are selling vitamin C by IV. They're making these false claims that it can help treat COVID-19. The FTC has had to get involved with shutting down some of these people. There was even an FBI raid on somebody who was doing these vitamin C by IV treatments. Brent, tell us a little bit about that. It's interesting. It's sort of taken almost like a, on like a cult status. It almost seems like a religion. Right? People really want to believe it does this and that in this scary time of pandemic. And I should say right off the top, I mean, vitamin C is very good for you. Everybody needs it. It's an essential nutrient. It does help your immunity. It's found in fruits and vegetables. And if you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, and you probably have a pretty good immune system and good overall health. So let's just make this clear. Vitamin C is good, okay? I mean, there's right. nothing really bad about it. You can take a lot of it and, and, and probably the worst that's going to happen is you don't need all that you, that you think you do, that you might be overtaking it, but it, that you might just come out of your body in natural ways and not really have any effect. And so it's important just to establish that. But what the pandemic has done is there's, a, there's fear out there about this invisible disease that nobody knows how to cure, prevent right now. And so people are kind of grasping at things that they think they know or think could help. And probably very predictably, we're seeing businesses that are going to try to push the envelope and try to say that, that mainlining vitamin C into your veins is going to prevent or cure COVID-19. And there, there's just no evidence to support that. And, and so we've seen like the federal government crack down on it because, you know, like the Federal Trade Commission has been investigating different businesses that, and what they say and how they advertise. They regulate against deceptive business practices and deceptive advertising. And they found dozens of businesses like wellness clinics that say that if you inject this into your vein through an IV, you are going to prevent yourself from getting COVID, et cetera. FBI, as you mentioned, they uh, raided a doctor's office uh, near Detroit in April where these, this doctor was very avid about this treatment. He was injecting this into their veins and saying it helped with COVID and he was also billing Medicare for it. And you're not supposed to do that because it's not, it's not, right. not an approved 
thing to bill Medicare for is something and, that and that's doesn't really work. And yeah. that's probably where it started really going downhill because they're seeing these treatments for COVID-19. I think that's the way he was presenting them even in the billing process. And that's where it's going to draw a lot of scrutiny. But you write about how there's a history of misunderstanding with vitamin C. And as you mentioned, you know, I'm not taking away from it. As you mentioned at the top, it is good for you. But where did it go where it became got this cult status? That probably can be traced back to 1970 when a guy, a scientist named Linus Pauling, published a book called Vitamin C and the Common Cold. And he basically theorized that you take higher doses of it, it's going to give you better defenses. And that has been the subject of debate. Some say that's been discredited. Some say, well, it's arguable that it, it didn't get enough testing. The tests about it weren't that good and that there have been studies that have shown that while it can't prevent the common cold, which there is no cure for the common cold, there are some indications that and evidence that it could reduce the severity of a cold or, or the duration of it. And it, just in the general sense that because you need vitamin C as a general essential nutrient, it, it's going to give you better immunity in general. It's just as far as making specific claims about it, about helping against this condition or disease is where it gets a little bit dicier. There, There is actually a, a Linus Pauling Institute at, at Oregon State University that, that's involved in studying exactly how vitamins can and can't help. And, and one of the guys there told me that there just hasn't been enough rigorous study to know exactly how much of a benefit it provides for certain things. And that's where, you know, we get into the stuff that was theorized back in the 70s is, you know, I don't think it's been totally disproven, but it just needs a lot more rigorous study to know exactly what it's doing. People are still thinking it works. There was a March 2020 survey that said 21% of people in the U.S. thought that taking vitamin C probably or definitely prevented COVID-19 infection. So the thought is out there, but you just got to know that vitamin C is not an approved treatment for COVID-19 or a preventative for COVID-19. One of these things that's taken on a lot more popularity in recent years, and especially now during the pandemic, is these IV treatments. Now, you can you can find a lot of these in a lot of cities. They're wellness centers or naturopathic doctors that are, are selling this about $200 per treatment where they put it into your veins and you sit there and you get this big high-dose injections. And they generally sell that under the claim that it boosts overall immunity and, and good health. That again, as I'm told, there's not really any evidence that having that big of a dose is necessary any more than just eating regular fruits and vegetables in a, in a normal good diet. It is generally safe. I mean, I've not heard any bad complications or people get this or any real horror stories about a vitamin C injection, but I guess the biggest risk then would be you're spending $200 on something you might not really need much more than having a lot of broccoli or strawberries in your diet. Brent Scrotenbor, investigative reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.